This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Well, thanks for tuning in. We're taking a break from our first Peter study, at least for one episode, and I'm going to talk about something that, I, according to my records, I've never discussed on this podcast before. Of course, that would that's a lot of things, but uh, the particular topic is that of premillennialism. Uh, maybe you've never heard of that before. Maybe you have, and you're familiar with the 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 word and the doctrines associated with it. But uh, I want to take a moment to uh, see what the Bible has to say about this. What in the world is premillennialism? How did this come about? Uh, what is it referring to? There are some different flavors uh, to this teaching, uh, but most of them have the same core ideas, uh, you could say. Uh, and that is... First, when Jesus returns, that he will reign upon the earth for a thousand years before final judgment. Now, some of the chronology and ordering, you know, may be different depending on, you know, which brand of premillennialism we're talking about. But uh, they all carry this idea of a 1,000 year brain. And this teaching is taken from Revelation 21 through 6. And so the very you know, name pre meaning before millennial, a thousand means we, you and I currently are, are living not in the last days, uh, as I believe scripture teaches, but rather before the 1000 year reign. So pre millennial before the 1000 year reign of, of Christ, uh, that's described in revelation chapter 20. Uh, so let's just read revelation 21 through six. It is, the vast majority of the tenets of this, this this doctrine are taken from this passage only, specifically verses 4, 5, and 6. Uh, but let's just read Revelation 21 through 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not re- deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, and they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, so this is the base text Usually, I mean, there's there's, you know, others who will pull in prophecies from Isaiah and Ezekiel and uh, some others. But usually when, you know, premillennialism is discussed, this Romans 21 through six is the base text, which is it's full of all this imagery right now. The argument goes that Jesus will reign on earth. The reason for this 1000 year reign is is because Jesus did not establish his kingdom the first time that he came. So when he came uh, to born into the world as a man to establish a kingdom, 
that because his people by and large rejected him and, and killed him, then he failed to establish a kingdom. And so a placeholder was was used, and that is the church. And I think from the outset that that very idea should give us pause. I don't think I'm misrepresenting what's, um, what a premillennialist would argue, in, in, at least in, in one case, a fellow named R.H. Bull, for example, who espouses this doctrine, would say the church is a contingent uh, to, to the kingdom, meaning it's this kind of unexpected backup plan. And I think that should be a cause for major concern, uh, for people who believe Jesus is the, the Son of God, you know what's, and we might say, well, what's the big deal here? People can be, you know, a little kooky, and we there's all some things, you know, there's there's always going to be some things that we don't completely grasp, and it's harmless, right? So long as they believe in Jesus. Well, first, let me say from the outset, I don't think that's the attitude we should have toward error. Um, we are as followers of Christ to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. And secondly, you know, sin and error, they don't exist in a vacuum, right? So it's not just, okay, someone has some crazy ideas about a couple of verses in Revelation. No, it's an entire system of error that is that is built off of some of these misconceptions and teachings. Um, and so because it's a system, then all other scripture has to be twisted to fit into this now man-made system of, of error. So that's and that's that's true really of any you know error that we can talk about, any false doctrine, not just this this one. Um and because there's serious implications that come that go along with this position, you know, about the nature of the church and about the nature of God and his power and authority and wisdom, uh, the kingship of Jesus, the promises of God. Uh, so sin is insidious. False teaching is insidious. And so it, it has to be taken seriously, whatever form it takes. Right. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Right. So. Because it's insidious and degenerative, we need to deal with it accordingly. We need to make sure we understand what um, what the Bible says and what it doesn't say. And so that's more or less our roadmap in, in brief. What we're going to see is Scripture teach that the church was built by Jesus Christ, Matthew 16, 18, just as he promised, upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. That it was purchased with his blood, Acts twenty twenty eight, and that this was always God's intention. So, in other words, it wasn't a backup plan. It's not a contingency, but rather this was always God's plan from from eternity. Uh, we'll read some passages in Colossians and Ephesians. I think that 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 prove that, uh, and then we want to consider some of these other implications here about the promises of God and and whether or not he fulfilled them uh, and implications about the power and authority of God. But let's just go with this, this first one that we're thinking about here, that the establishment of the church was just not an accident, but a, a backup plan to uh, to compensate for a failure to establish a kingdom. Uh, so Colossians 3, 
uh, excuse me, Ephesians 3 and verse 11, uh, if you want to turn there, Ephesians 3, and this is really the the middle of a thought as Paul is describing his own um, work as an, as an apostle, that he's been given grace by God to preach the truth, to preach the gospel, verses 8 and 9. And then verse 10, he says, So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And notice verse 11, he says, This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, eternal eternal purpose. So from all eternity, if I'm understanding Paul correctly, this is what God intended to do. Now this is just one isolated text uh, that says this, but there are many, many others. You know, I mentioned Colossians 1 just a moment ago, where Paul is essentially saying the same thing to that church as he's describing himself as a minister or steward of the word that's been entrusted to him that he's preaching and he's suffering for. And he says in verse 26 that it's a mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Um, to them, God chose to make known how great the Gentiles, great among the Gentiles, are the riches, the glories of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that's significant because he's he's attaching his preaching to, uh, and, and his suffering as he's preaching, um, to to Christ's establishment of his church back in verses twenty four and twenty five. He says, "I'm rejoicing in suffering." Uh, and I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, and then of which he's a minister, according to the stewardship of God. Again, making known this mystery that's been hidden for ages and generations. So the argument that, first of all, the church was an accident, I, you know, doesn't bear up if we just thumb through a couple of verses here. And, and certainly if we consider the whole scope of Scripture from beginning to end, it's not going to bear out when we consider the nature of, of God. So whatever Revelation 20 verses 1 through 6 is talking about, um, it even if I don't understand it, it can't mean, it can't mean that this thousand-year reign is coming because Jesus failed and because the church is just a placeholder uh, until his reign can be established, uh, that I, I don't find that anywhere in scriptures, and certainly not in Revelation twenty. You know the, and some will go so far as to argue on the premillennial side that the establishment of the church was not prophesied in the Old Testament. So they'll say, you know, when you get to looking at some of those Old Testament prophecies, that it was a kingdom that was foretold. And it was a kingdom announced by John the Baptist. And as John preached in Matthew 3, repent for the kingdom is at hand. And then Christ in Matthew 4 begins preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now that we know the what played out and how Jesus was rejected and crucified, well, it postponed the coming of that, that kingdom is the argument. And they'll say, well, that because that, that happened and because the, the prophets never foretold of a church, they foretold of a kingdom, the kingdom must still be waiting to come, or we should still be waiting for the, the kingdom. And so they'll say the period in which we're now living, they'll describe as the church age. Uh, so, and then they'll say, you know, the, then there's the kingdom age, and then there's the last days that come. 
uh, in the church age is to continue until Christ comes again, when he can finally restore restore the kingdom. And, and, and in some cases, they'll argue restore uh, the Jewish people to Palestine. And so, there, again, there's, there's this literal earthly throne of David that's going to be reestablished and then the you know the the Jews will be finally given you know that whole territory and the and the boundaries that God said would be filled are going to be filled and the temple's going to be rebuilt so you know when you get to look in again there's a lot of different flavors and different ideas associated with it but that's one of the core tenets is this earthly a physical throne kingdom that's going to be established. And that's the general structure of the, the premillennial view. Uh, so they're making this distinction between the kingdom of Christ and the church of Christ that he established. Um, and that's all very strange to me because New Testament writers, and I think Jesus himself also, will use those terms uh, interchangeably uh, and you know, Jesus himself promised that the kingdom would come soon and shortly. Remember in Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, he says, There's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come. So either those, you know, Jesus was true to his word and the kingdom came within the lifetime of those individuals or, you know, he was just making it up. I guess the alternative would be that those people he was talking to are still alive somewhere waiting for the kingdom. Uh, but I just don't think that's likely. I think he meant exactly what he said, that within their lifetime, they would see the kingdom established. So I don't claim to understand everything about that passage in Revelation. But notice in those six verses that we read, there is no mention of Jesus' second coming that folks are associating with this 1,000-year reign. That's not spoken of in the text. There's also no mention of a reign on earth. So there is a thousand-year reign, but where that happens isn't specified. This is just, that is from the imagination of men. There's no mention of a literal throne of David. Again, that's imposed upon the text. There's no mention of Jerusalem or Palestine. There's no mention even of Christ on earth. So we all have to be careful as we're reading the Bible that we don't, you know, human bias is present with, within everyone. And we can come to the text and easily, I think, make some assumptions based on our past experiences or upbringing or biases uh, and impose some things on the text that just aren't, aren't there. Uh, so I want you to think about with me, let's say, okay, we, we accept the, what the premillennialist is trying to tell us uh, and what that means about the church and the kingdom and and the future and the power of God, if I were to accept that the church is a placeholder until this supposed 1,000-year reign kingdom, wouldn't that denigrate the church? Doesn't that denigrate the work that Jesus did? I mean, we've already seen the passages where the church is described as God's eternal intention. It was his purpose. And really, has there have have there ever been any accidents with God? Have there ever been any contingencies with God? Again, I'm not putting words in their mouth. Contingency is a word that that a premillennialist will use. Um, and I I think that that takes us into troublesome waters because it 
goes against what the Holy Spirit is saying in those passages that we read, Ephesians 3, 8 through 11 and Colossians 1, 24, among, among others, right? When it says the church, the establishment of the church, the preaching of the gospel, salvation in Christ was according to the eternal purpose of God. Uh, I have to understand that that was, I believe you have to understand that that was always his intention. But if I'm to believe the premillennial, then the savior of the world needs a backup plan. You know, if he's the savior of the world and he needs a contingency or he was only able to establish a contingency, why should I believe in that savior? You know, the, the quote that I um, alluded to earlier is it's from a fellow named R.H. Bowl. It was, um, I think he was from Louisville, Kentucky or, worked in that area for some time, and he was one of the leaders of this movement, premillennialist movement. It didn't originate with him. I mean, you can go back as far as the second century and see guys like Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and and others who whose writings have been preserved to some extent. They, they also adopted this view. Um, but again, that's second century. That's not first century when Scripture was um, finished and delivered. So he will say, that the church is a spiritual, a new spiritual contingent. Um, so again, according to, to his theory, had it not been for the rejection of the Messiah by the Jews, well, then the old literal kingdom of David would have been reestablished and the church never would have been brought into existence. Well, you know, how can I accept that when it's called the eternal purpose of God, right? You know, we have prophecies in the Old Testament that do for, foretell of the establishment of a, a new covenant, a new people of God, Jeremiah 30, uh, for example. Um, but they, they never foretell of an, of an earthly king or earthly kingdom. So they do speak of a, a, a new government, a new king, a new kingdom, uh, uh, you know, a, a new order, a new law, Deuteronomy 18, a new lawgiver. Uh, but they never characterize those things as um, something that's going to be earthly in, in nature. Now, the Jews, including the apostles, that's what they were expecting, right? Acts 1 and verse 6, and they say, they come together and they ask him, you know, Lord, you know, Jesus at this point has been raised from the dead. Remember, he, and he's with his disciples for a number of weeks before he ascends to heaven in Acts chapter 1. And, and so they're there and they ask him in, in verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Okay, so th that's what they were anticipating. They, they were looking for this literal kingdom to be reestablished. Rome is going to be kicked out and finally we're going to be our own people again. We're going to have our own, own government. Um. But even at that point, they failed to understand that that's, that wasn't the purpose, that that was not the kingdom Jesus came to establish. Because if you pay careful attention to his words, you, you find that very thing, right? He says, the kingdom does not come with observation. Remember, the kingdom doesn't, so don't listen when someone says, come here and see it, but the kingdom will be in you kingdom will be in you. And as he told Pilate in John 18 and verse 36, 
right? Because that was one of the charges that the Jews were leveling against him. His enemies were saying, you know, he's trying to set himself up as this rival king to Caesar. And, um, you know, so he's a threat to Rome, so you need to execute him. And so Pilate is questioning about that in John 18. And Jesus answers in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. And remember, too, Pilate says, oh, so you so you are a king. And Jesus says, you, you've said so. Uh, your Bible might say it is, or it is as you say. Um, from In the New American Standard, it puts it even more plainly. You say correctly that I am a king. For this I was born, and this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Okay, so clearly Jesus calls himself a king, that he came to establish a kingdom. Uh, he tells Peter, you're going to be given the keys of the kingdom in Matthew 16, which incidentally, I believe that's one of the places where the terms church and kingdom are used interchangeably in the New Testament. So Jesus says, upon this rock, I build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom. As he's speaking to Peter, and whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will already have been loosed in heaven. Uh, so we put all that together. And I think we can pretty quickly make make the case and see, well, the kingdom that he's going to establish and the kingdom that was prophesied in the Old Testament was was spiritual in nature, that it was never going to be physical, that it was never going to be set up as this, you know, geographical kind of power that would oppose earthly kingdoms of, of the world. It's true that it's in opposition to all the powers of man. Um, and the power of Satan, but uh, but in a spiritual sense. And I would submit to you that the kingdom he established began when the church began in Acts chapter 2, that the kingdom and the church were established on the day of Pentecost because they are one of the same thing. Those And they're made up of the same people, and that is those who live under the rule of Christ, right? The kingdom is going to be in you, well, how can that be? Because the king is in you. He reigns in you, in your heart. But in the premillennial thinking, these are two different things. But biblically, I think as we look as, at Jesus' words and the words of his apostles and other men inspired by the Holy Spirit, that, it's two, that kingdom and church are two different ways of describing the same thing. And that is the body of Christ. The very nature of his kingdom is spiritual, right? The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans 14, 17. Um, to be in the kingdom is to be in the church, right? He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, Colossians 1, 18. All right, and John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word and the testimony of Jesus. So John describes himself as being in, in the kingdom. 
I'm your partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom. Where Paul will say in Colossians 1.13 that we have been transferred, as he's speaking to the Christians there, we've been transferred from the kingdom of Satan or the power of Satan, the domain of Satan, to the kingdom of his beloved son. So, I mean, there's all sorts of angles we could come at this, but I feel like it's it's pretty well established. Jesus is the head of the church. Colossians 1.18, he rules over the kingdom. Revelation 1.6, he made us to be a kingdom, his people, priest to his God and Father. So the idea that it had to be postponed because of rejection by the Jews and that the church is an interruption, to quote another premillennialist, H.A. Ironside, um, it's it's just completely false. You know, he is he is all powerful, and the plans of God are not going to be thwarted by the rejection of men. I mean, come on. The church was not only in the mind of God from all eternity, Ephesians three eleven, uh, but is. It is the spiritual Israel. It is a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. As Paul says in Galatians 3, if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Uh, so all of that to say, you know, the implication here is if, I, if I'm going to say, yeah, the church is just, you know, a, it's a backup plan. It's a placeholder. It's a contingency. What a denigration, what an insult to the power and wisdom of God to describe the people that his son died for in, in that way as well. I mean, it's just, you know, I don't I don't know what the motivation is here. You know, I suspect that it's the same for all false teaching, but you know, someone who may have been duped by this you know, these are the only outcomes that, you know, th- this is where going down this road takes you. There's no, there's no alternative. You know, you put yourself in a position where you're disparaging the, the power and wisdom of God. You're disparaging the church. You're disparaging, you know, the, the reason Christ came into the world. You know, it's, you know, the, the good news was the kingdom is at hand. And the good news is that it is now here. Matthew 3, 2, that's what John came to prepare the way for. Make straight the, the paths of the Lord. And so when he said when he said that, that it's near, that it's at hand, I I think that he meant exactly that. Now I know near can be relative and you know with with God as you know a thousand years is a day and a day a thousand years but when we just consider the words of the men who were preaching that message right that they would say now is the time right mark 9 1 I've already quoted where Jesus says there's people alive here you're gonna see the kingdom come and then again in mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15 after John was arrested Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God saying the time is fulfilled Verse 15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, many responded in faith that 
the kingdom would come. And if it didn't come, then God was not true to his promise. Now, it should be noted that not one word was uttered about national repentance or um, you know, a, restora- a physical restoration of the Jewish people to the land of Palestine. That was never a, a condition or an outcome for the kingdom coming. You know, and if, you know, if God didn't know that the kingdom would be postponed when he made his promise, then God would not be omniscient. You see the terrible implication there. God announced something that he did not know would be postponed. Are we willing to accept that? You know, it just doesn't add up. Who can believe a God and a Christ that makes a false promise? So serious consequences here. Uh, these teachings necessarily take us to a place we don't want to go. You know, I mentioned earlier that it, there's various chronologies, of course, within the premillennial movement, but the one of those, uh, many of those will suggest that we're not in the last days, right? So there's the church age, then the, the kingdom age that is to come, and then they'll say, you know, then there will be the last days uh, at some point. Uh, but again, is this what New Testament writers say? How do they characterize the time that we're that we're living in? Peter identified the time of the last days when he declared on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two, uh, as he's quoting the prophet Joel there. That this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, Acts two sixteen, that in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will shall, uh, shall prophesy, and young men will see visions. And so, remember, he says that in response to um, the apostles being empowered to speak in different languages, and people hear this and they suppose that they're drunk. And he says, "No, this is a fulfillment of prophecy." But notice the timing, you know, that he uses there, the in verse seventeen that he's we're in the last days. Uh, how does the Hebrew writer characterize our time? Hebrews 1, long ago, and many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. So Jesus has, has come. He's delivered the final revelation of God. He's the, he is the new lawgiver. He established a new covenant. He sent his Spirit to inspire men to... Uh, reveal his will further to lead them into all truth. And the Hebrew writer is characterizing that, that time beginning then as the last days. In other words, they've been inaugurated, right? We're not looking forward to them. We, we are in them, right? Why else would John say little children? It is the last hour. He was writing 2000 years ago, right? So we we can't escape the force of that that scripture. Peter 2, when he says he's referring to the present age, not the end of time, in 2 Peter 3, he says, this is the second letter I'm writing to you. I'm trying to stir you up by sincere way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, right? So he's shoring up the faith of his people. He's just, he's reminding them, this is what's going to happen. Mockers are going to come. And I think as you investigate further, you're going to find that 
other Bible writers speak in the in the same way. Uh, and then, last couple of things here with regard to the resurrection, because this is another key point within premillennialism, is that they declare that Revelation twenty verses five and six are speaking of two different physical resurrections. Uh, I think it's important to note that again, Revelation is highly figurative in its in its language and uses a lot of imagery and uh, symbolism. And, and overlaps with a lot of how many of the prophets would um, would prophesy. And the Bible doesn't always use resurrection to indicate a, a physical or a bodily resurrection. But sometimes that word is used of uh, God's people being restored, for example, in the prophets. They're uh, resurrected from the power of Babylon. Well, they weren't raised from the dead, but... You know they were in captivity and under the power of uh, these these oppressors, and so their resurrection is spoken of as being released from from that power. I don't have that citation in front of me, but I encourage you to investigate uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel. Um, so there is this idea taken from this text that because Jesus says there's a first resur or John says there's a first resurrection and then followed by another one a thousand years later, that um, that accounts for this er earthly reign um, separated by these two bodily resurrections. The trouble with that is, is, is that what Jesus had said earlier, that an hour was coming when everyone in the tombs would hear his voice, they would come out, those who have done good to a resurrection of life and those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment in John 5, 28 and 29. And then he goes on to say that that's going to take place on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day, John six forty four. So here, <clears throat> I just want to make the simple observation that if it is the last day, well, there, there can't be 365,000 more days or a thousand years to follow when Jesus says, no, this is the last one. And here I'm going to raise, um, raise people up and notice the righteous and wicked are raised together at the same time. And so there's no intervening period, uh, wherein you have the resurrection of two different classes. So that can't be what revelation 20 is talking about. Uh, and again, think about the implications of accepting that teaching because some fundamental teachings of the gospel are, you know, you don't know what your life is going to be like tomorrow. You're just a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes in time. Um, you know, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. First Thessalonians 5, 2 and 3. So again, you don't know what your life will be like. You don't know when Jesus will return. Neither do you have any control uh, over those things. But what you can do is do what Jesus says, and that is be ready. Now, if I go around saying, you know, we're not in the last days. There's going to be a thousand-year reign. Well, what's, okay, where's the sense of urgency in that? So it's it's counter to what Jesus is calling me to be ready for. If I subscribe to a flavor of premillennialism that says there's going to be 
a whole lot of chances down the road here, second chances. Even if you don't repent now, you're going to have another shot once Jesus returns. That doesn't that does not fit what the Holy Spirit is saying in those texts. Jesus says, I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Luke 18, 8. In Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed once for man to die, and then after that comes the judgment. You know, but if I'm adopting a premillennial view, I'm going to say, well, there's you've got more time. <laughs> what you should say to me is, who do you think you are? Right, when... Holy Spirit-inspired men are saying the Lord is going to return and He's going to be like a thief in the night. And what you and I need to do is make sure we're ready for that day whenever it comes. And lastly, let's let's end with this. Um, you know, adopting a premillennial view means I have to deny that Jesus is on His throne. Because if I'm saying that the kingdom has been postponed, and again, there's the, the church as a placeholder, then Jesus is not king, right? In order for there to be a kingdom, there must be a king reigning over it now, presently. Uh, but that, again, the premillennialists will say that's not going to happen until he returns and he sets up his his kingdom. Well, what does the Bible say? Um, when Jesus ascended to heaven, Hebrews 1.8, it says that he occupies his, his throne, which is said to be forever. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. But the premillennia says that Jesus is not on his throne, but on his Father's throne. Okay, well, Hebrews 1.8 that I just read seems to indicate differently. And Hebrews 1.3 says that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Uh, and Hebrews 8.1 says the main point, and what we've been saying is this, that we have such a high priest who has taken his seat again at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, that he is Melchizedek, as you go on to read there. Well, what does that mean? Melchizedek, as you read through Hebrews 5, 6, and 7, um, is an order of, of priesthood wherein the high priest is also king. And so there's some things there that are said about Melchizedek in, in Genesis and how Christ is the fulfillment of that uh, prophecy. Um, and now the earth is his footstool. And so premillennialism demotes Jesus by bringing him down, again, to sit upon a literal throne, a carnal, temporal, earthly realm, kingdom. But that's, that's not what he, again, came to establish, and that's not what he's currently reigning over. Because to be a king, to, to serve as Melchizedek, he has to be both king and priest now, currently. And this is what the Hebrew writer, I believe, is saying that he is. You know, think what did what did Peter say in that first sermon in Acts chapter 2 and verse 30? David being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne... He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. 
So he sits and rules not only upon his throne, but also David's throne. Again, not physical, not earthly, but what does what do those prophecies ultimately point forward to? And Peter says in verse 31, it was talking about his resurrection. When God would prove to all men that this is his chosen one, this is his king, and he now reigns as Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And he will continue to reign until he has put the last enemy under his feet. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But if the premillennialist is to be believed, um, R.H. Bull, I've quoted him earlier, I'll quote him again, <clears throat> says that Jesus Christ is king de jour but not king de facto. In other words, he's he's king by right, but not in fact king right now. But that just flies in the face, I think, of all those passages that we read. There's a lot of consequences here, a lot of tragic consequences to premillennialism and adopting that view. And I think it boils down to a lot of people making the same mistake as did a lot of the Jews in the first century, including many of Jesus' disciples who expected him to be a king like Caesar, a, a king in the sense of, you know, one who has a geographical border kingdom land staked out somewhere. It's materialistic in its, in its nature. But if we pay attention, I think, to what he says uh, his kingdom was going to be anything but materialistic. It would be spiritual. And to try and force this into Scripture has the terrible consequence of dethroning him and denying what God said he intended to do and what God actually accomplished in, in his son. The reality is he accomplished all that he came to do. His mission is complete. If he was part of some backup plan, he wouldn't have said in John 17, I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. No, he, he saw it through to completion. And so to be a follower of Christ means you're not looking for an earthly kingdom anymore. You're not going to be ever satisfied with anything of this of this world. You'll never find perfect peace and joy and security here, but we're looking to our eternal home with him in heaven where he reigns at the right hand of his father. And he says that we will get to reign with him. And this is what all faithful men and women have looked forward to from the days of Abraham onward, right? They're, they're looking for a city which has foundations, whose maker and builder is God. They're not thinking of the country from which they, they left, but they're looking for a better one that is a heavenly one. Hebrews eleven sixteen. I appreciate you tuning in today. Please continue to study these things, and I know this has been a longer study than, than usual, so again, I appreciate you tuning in. You can find more resources at leonvalleychurch.org. And if you'd like to contact me with a request or question or uh, discussion, 
You can reach me at leonvalleychurch at gmail.com.